Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Attention sports fans, award-winning sports columnist and ESPN commentator Woody Page is putting down the chalkboard and picking up the mic for the Woody Page podcast on Podcast One Sportsnet. Join Woody each week as he takes on sports and pop culture with his roster of famous and even legendary guests from the world of sports and entertainment. Drop the chalk and download new episodes of the Woody Page podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is a first-time Real GM Radio guest, actually the first time the two of us have ever been on a podcast together, and that's Ben Taylor. He does great work. I like to think of it as thinking basketball in all of its forms. So he has a podcast, he has great video work, which you can check out on YouTube, and then a Patreon, which largely runs through backpicks.com. And We had an awesome conversation. It's very hard to describe because we went in so many different directions, but really it's about team building and championships and what we're looking forward to in the next year and the post-Warriors and a lot of that kind of stuff and what teams are exciting for this year. And really great conversation, runs about an hour and a half, and then after that... You can listen to a, a conversation I had with Dave Mason at BetOnline.ag. We talked about a really fascinating week two in the NFL from his perspective in terms of the Pats Dolphins line, the Sam Darnold stuff, and a couple other little things. And then after that, I decided to, to take a few minutes and, and talk about Sean Livingston. And um, right before Ben right before Ben and I were going to record was Sean's announcement that he was going to retire. And so it didn't really seem like something that I wanted to write, though maybe it comes maybe it goes in that direction as well but after this but i had some thoughts so we're gonna put gonna i'm gonna put that at the very end of it after after the talk with dave and so you can listen for all that this podcast is brought to you by betonline.ag use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus and then you'll hear something else awesome during the ad itself so here we go with ben i love this episode very hard to describe but really good content so i hope you like it too thanks so much for coming on oh thanks for having me i'm, I'm excited to uh to chat yeah, it it's fun to have you on for the first time. You and I had some extended conversations this summer at Vegas, and something that was kind of in process at that point and is now a little bit more crystallized is just kind of the structure of the league. I mean, that was that when we were in Vegas was when Kawhi and Paul George ended up with the Clippers and everything else, and I've still I've spent a lot of this summer trying to piece together kind of the like a grand unified theory of the league and one of the parts of it that I've been really interested in is the changing role of the big man and that's something you and I are both really interested in in center play and you know bigs whether wherever they classify and I mean some of that is the the death of the warriors and in, in the as the team that they were before and I don't know. I have this theory in the back of my mind that the door is significantly more open for some of the players that had kind of gotten squeezed out over the last four or five years. So when you say the guys who have been squeezed out, I mean, is that first thought the the Roy Hibbert sort of defensive stiff archetype? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, I'm thinking of like the non the non switching center. I mean, you can separate. I like to separate out offensive and defensive roles. So like theoretically, you know, that I guess that would be more like a Mehmet Okur or it's like a non switching center that can also shoot threes would be an interesting conversation piece. But that's my idea is that, you know, like, I mean, Clint Capella, for example, talented player, but even he got marginalized in some of the Warriors Rocket series, partially because they had PJ. But that the idea that basically these players that had become 
a more challenging decision because obviously there are some of them that are so good you have to keep them on the floor no matter what. And I mean that's part of where the league is going too. But if there is less of an imperative to get those players off the floor, then that creates a couple of other really interesting ripple effects. So if we can get really nerdy right away, I, I'm I'm on board with splitting offensive and defensive roles. I, I've always sort of done that in my head anyway. Uh, like LeBron is effectively a point guard or lead guard offensive player uh, when, you know, when he has the ball. But on defense, he may be a three or a four or whatever. So I'm with you there. The the thing I want to dive into that's very interesting is if a guy like Capella is being played off the floor, how much of that is a combination of offense and defense, right? We often identify that as, well, this guy can't switch or he's being picked on in the pick and roll. But if you don't get something back on offense, that's why Okor, you're bringing him up, is a very interesting type or archetype to cite right away, right? Because a lot of these guys that get played off the floor, to me, are losing or bleeding value on both ends versus just defense. So I wanted to inject that and get your thoughts right out of the gate there. That's a great point. And really what it boils down to, I mean, I, I kind of co- combine that with the reluctant three-point shooters at other positions type of thing. So like Brandon Ingram, Thad Young, some of those type of guys, which is the more outs you give an opposing defense, especially an intelligent one, and as you get deeper in the playoffs, the easier it is on on those on the defenders and the harder it is on your offensive players. So I think that's exactly. a really good point. And Capella is a great example. I mean, wonderful at what he does, but if the other team is sucking in a little bit, conceding some other things, then he becomes more of a negative def- offensively than he would have been before. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's a really healthy way to think about it. And I, and I also like, I mean, there are some really good players in the league right now, as there have been for years, in terms of the importance of separating out offensive and defensive roles. For me, one of those has been Dirk for a long time. I mean, with the comfort and frequency of his three-point shooting. But for me right now, one of the main guys for that, LeBron is, is, is a pretty clear one too, is Jokic. Because... The and and a lot of it for me is also the theory and Jokic is also an interesting example in terms of you know like taking a guy out because if even if Jokic is a negative defensively he is the centerpiece the whole like the the main reason why the Denver offense works so you can't really play him off the floor unless Denver is willing to become a fundamentally different team that wouldn't be that good yeah absolutely and I actually thought you were going to say Ben Simmons because yeah he's a good one too because he's he's nominally a point guard when it comes to things like casual fan chat or all-star ballots or things like this but out of all the players you know out of all the high profile players in the league that to me is such a a strange classification because defensively he's so many different things uh not necessarily a point guard and then on offense uh, other than like pushing in transition he really plays more like a big so but but with Jokic you know the point stands I'm actually do you I'm curious do you connect Jokic and Dirk uh, for those same reasons that you just outlined in terms of offensive and defensive trade-offs? Sort of. What I think I for them is the idea that their role does not necessarily line up with somebody who's traditionally their size. You know, and so like for Jokic, it's it's that he's the he's the hub, and he's not the first center to ever be a hub. You know, he he might be the best at it. You would know better than I would because you're far more of a basketball historian than I am. But 
that's more of what it is. And for Dirk, the shooting is a big part of it, but also it was the nature of his usage. Like, you you just don't see that many players who occupy the space on the floor and the ball the way that he did. And so tying that in with, oh, he's a seven-footer or something else, especially because Dirk, to me, in an ideal system, and granted, in the modern NBA, he probably would have been a five in the same way that I think, well, not in the same way, but in a similar way to like how Porzingis is going to end up there because that's really all they can do. But in, in that system, but in that era, he was totally fine as a four at least as i remember it so that he started as a three yeah, he did just so people realize what was happening in the 90s like he he was a small forward at seven feet keep keep going yeah and and so for me it's more that idea of of do you occupy do you occupy a space and role that is that is unusual for who you defend and that's definitely true for Jokic because the role part more than the space part but both really and then for Dirk it was more the space i would say but i mean also like you know being an mvp in in the in the like kind of the the role that he had with Dallas in those years that was very unusual for a guy like him so i want to stay on this before we circle back to the capella Roy Hibbert kind of place where we started because I've always and I'm I'm curious on your take I've always sort of viewed uh, Jokic falls into this category but Dirk was definitely there there's there's something about occupying one of these key defensive positions on the court that to me kind of puts a ceiling on your defense and the trade-off is fine right you're a great offensive player but really when you dive deep into the history of great teams you need to be able to scale up on offense and defense and there was always a bit of a limiting factor for me with Dirk being one of those big guys especially if you play him at the five in in today's game and I feel like Denver runs into that a little bit with Jokic where like your best bet is to pair him next to another functionally capable defensive big maybe kind of like Paul Millsap but um, even when you do that, you're still potentially limited on the defensive side. I, I was wondering if you know what your take on that was. I broadly agree with you, and it's also worth noting that the defensive players that fulfill that role next to Jokic are typically going to be more offensively limited. Now, Jokic is so good offensively that he more than makes up for that that deficit. And that's something that I'm excited to see with Carl Anthony Towns this year, just where he goes with that. But broadly speaking, I agree with you. And this is something actually, and this is, this is going to maybe surprise some people. I brought this up with the Anthony Davis trade. And so the basic idea there was, for me, in order to be a real championship contender, you know, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, like an injury-based anomaly or something like that, but to be like in that group, you have to be elite on one end of the floor, you know, kind of like the unstoppable or really hard to you know, like, or on the defensive end, just like really hard to score on. And then on the other end, you need to be very good and ideally at least periodically dominant, you know, so like that kind of level, because there is a selection process that happens through the playoffs. You know, you play four opponents that have very different strengths and weaknesses. And usually one of those teams isn't very good. So you can focus more on the other three. And teams that do not, cannot reach both of those levels just generally don't survive. And so my question then, and it's, and so it's interesting because I mean, Anthony Davis pretty cleanly considering his, especially his college pedigree has a higher defensive ceiling than Nikola Jokic does. But one of my questions was, do the Lakers have enough defenders? Do they have enough defensive talent to reach like kind of the lower end of that, even if their offense is great? And so, yeah, I totally agree with you on the concept. And I think it might be more broadly applicable this year than just teams like the Nuggets. Hmm. So do you think the 
So I, I've heard you talk about the Lakers a little bit this summer. Are you thinking that Davis, his his presence just gets them to where they need to be for those late rounds? Or is that still a question mark for you when it comes to them? And let me tell you, let me tell you why I'm asking, because I, I am higher on Anthony Davis than most people and often get a lot of pushback on how high I am on him. And the thing that kind of makes me scratch my head is I'm a little bit more skeptical about his defense. I think his defensive ceiling is very clear, like the capacity for his defense, the physical tools, some of the techniques and talents and stretches of defense that he's put together are self-evident for anybody who's paid attention or watched that film. But I actually, ironically, even though he's a big, and you mentioned Carl Anthony Towns, we now have all these incredibly talented offensive bigs with Jokic, Towns, Davis is another one. Lately, I'm feeling more confident in his offense than his defense. So t- tie that together for me. I'm actually curious as to sort of how you see him and the Lakers ceiling defensively right now. It, it ties in, yeah, Davis, the defensive end has been a little bit more of a concern. And I mean, there is a big challenge with context because those, especially because those New Orleans teams dealt so much with injury. And like I thought they had, you know, I mean, Drew's obviously a wonderful defender, but they just never really had, you know, four, they very rarely had four or five like competent defenders on the on the on the score, and that makes it really hard to make a lot of this stuff work. And some of the, you know, like not really having a defensive three was a challenge. But for me, it's the combination of you need AD to step up, but also. LeBron has taken a meaningful step back on defense, and some of that could be regular season Bron. I mean, he was during that stretch when the Cavs needed him to win the title a few years ago. I mean, granted, that was 2016, and the years between 32 and 35 are very daunting. You know, like, that's not the same thing. But so that's a part of it is, is you know, those two guys together, because I think in the ideal world, the Lakers are playing LeBron and AD at the four and the five. But part of why I'm a little bit more concerned about their defensive ceiling is, well, they have a lot of other capable defenders. I mean, when Caldwell Pope is engaged, he can do it. Danny Green obviously has that in, in, in his past and to a to lesser extent in his present. But they don't really have that three defender. And so, it, okay, let's say you're going to ask LeBron to do that. Then I guess maybe you're using Jared Dudley at the four. You're going in those sorts of directions. So for me, it's just that I can't put together a five-man lineup right now for the Lakers that I think fulfills both criteria. Now, I think they're going to be awesome offensively. LeBron and AD, I think they're going to fit together really well. I do I do wonder a little bit about how the spacing stuff is going to play out. But just Davis, I think, is underrated as a transition offensive player. And he's just an amazing talent anyway. So... But the thing that gives me a little bit of pause about that with the Lakers, and this is the the challenge this year, and this is a really big thing that Nate and I haven't talked about as much as I want to later on, is I think this year a a really important thing to consider is that I think some of these high-end potential title contenders are going to add some talent in season that will change the way we think about some of these specific issues. So yeah, if the Lakers add let's say, even though he's not perfect for this, Andre Guadalla during the course of the season. Well, then I'm, my concern is, is is largely mooted. So I, I could see something like that do it, but it's just the, I can't figure out the theory of their defense that doesn't basically say, LeBron, you have to do everything on offense. Yeah, I hear you, I hear you and Nate talk about the dearth of, of wings sometimes. And I'm actually just wondering from like a league-wide trend standpoint, you know, Golden State last year literally ran out of 
quality forwards to put on the court at the end of the season. And other teams seem to have this problem here. We're talking about a title contender and we're talking about the Lakers. And I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you. I think AD at the five, LeBron at the four. Now, can Danny Green, I mean, if Danny Green is one of your wing defenders, I would think that you have that shot spot shored up decently well. Do you do you not buy that? It depends on what type of wing we're talking. I mean, so I think Paul I think I think he can maybe do it kind of decent. I can get into Paul George a little bit, but I don't I wouldn't trust Danny Green on Kawhi. Yeah, now what this gets back to our original sort of offense defense trade-off topic. Are the clip if the Clippers are playing Kawhi at the four or George and Kawhi at the two forward positions, then in a playoff series with the Lakers, I would think that you're okay with LeBron at the quote unquote four, yeah. and maybe right. You see what I'm getting at? Well, yeah, and and there's an interesting an interesting idea incidentally with how Kawhi defended Giannis in that if you defend Kawhi sort of like with Giannis, you defend him more like a big, and LeBron is actually a really good fit for that. Then maybe he's still going to score, but maybe it's, he just doesn't create enough reliable offense, and that makes it work. That's an interesting idea, and then then you could go in a couple different directions for the other guys. Obviously, AD is going to be on the floor, and then you, they could go. I mean, they could have some shooters. They could go in a couple different directions, and also it's fun because the Clippers have all these uncertain pieces too. Like then you have to have somebody chase sham it around the floor and a couple other things, but that's not an organizational imperative. So yeah, that might be the way to do it, and I really, really want to see that series. Like, I think that. That might be the number one single conference series that I want to see the most. Yeah, that that yeah. will be very that will be very fun if that actually comes to fruition. But I'm in agreement with you on another point you just made, which is that I think it's naive to think that the teams that we have in place today are going to be the same. There's going to be key rotational pieces on some of these contenders that I would imagine are absolutely different by the time we get to April and May, not just because of the landscape of the league right now. And, you know, you would know far better than me in terms of being able to earmark the specific guys, the the Andre Iguodala's of the world that are candidates to be moved in some capacity, whether it's buyout market stuff that happens, uh, whether it's trades, midseason, whatever. But not only that, but there's historical precedent for this. I mean, the 2008 season was an historical season to me that had a lot of turnover and sort of rapid change. And within that change, within that season, you had Garnett and Allen joining the Celtics, and they came out of the gates in the first few months, and they just stomped the entire league. And I don't know if you remember this, but that trade deadline was was bonkers. It was just like the entire Western Conference and a handful of Eastern teams trading huge pieces because at a certain point in the season, you identify, right? You get to identify on the fly. What do I need? What kind of do you, you guys talk about this all the time? Am I a buyer? Am I a seller? Do I need one more piece to get over the hump or is it not worth it? Do I play for the future? And I think in these kinds of seasons where there's a huge amount of clay that needs to reset, I don't mean clay Thompson. I mean, you know, metaphorically speaking, clay in the clay in the kiln. Um, when that happens, Oftentimes, teams don't know where they stand in November, but they have a much better idea of how they want to strategically approach the rest of the year at the deadline. And it just seems crazy to me to think that the rotations we see now are what they're going to be. And the Clippers are maybe a prime example where they have guys like Lou Williams and Trez Harrell who are talented and skilled and have specializations, but they have some pretty glaring weaknesses that you may want to swap out or trade in a playoff rotation. And so I'm not convinced that those teams, the way they're set up now, are what we're going to see if we, if we actually get a hallway series. 
Yeah, and I, I think the other key piece there, and this is different between the Lakers and the Clippers, it's it's prominent for the Clippers, is that you know both these teams traded away a ton of draft picks in in the moves to acquire the the new stars that they added. And it is very apparent to me, because of what they gave up and the fact that they still did this, that the Clippers deliberately retained the ability to trade their 2020 first round pick. And basically because the first one that they're sending to OKC is 2022, so that means due to the Stepien rule, they can trade their 2020 without any sort of impediment. The Lakers owe the Clippers, or sorry, the Lakers owe the Pels their 2021, but it's protected. So that trading that would be a little bit dicey. They're, you know, they could acquire another pick. There are a couple other little tricks they could do. But generally speaking, that's not true. So with the Clippers, as you said, they have these players that not only have quality established quality in the league you know both guys have been six man of the year contenders blue is obviously one and they have reasonable salaries they have bird rights and so i could i could envision a scenario where one or both of them are involved in a trade also involving that first round pick to get somebody who's even better who maybe makes a little bit more money and can fit in with this team on whatever time frame the clippers care about so yeah i could absolutely see that being the case also I've said for years that this was especially true in the previous CBA, but just the the teams in LA and New York were so poorly run at that time that none of them got to benefit that both that CBA and to a lesser extent this one were really favorable for major market teams that were really good because of the structure of like minimum contracts and, and everything else. So like these teams are going to be towards the forefront of buyout guys too. And so that's something that you don't even have to move that much stuff around. They don't, the Clippers can, they can maybe get an extra rotation. Maybe it's more of like a 10 to 15 minute a game player through a buyout. And those are going to be ways that this really benefits and really benefit them. And that ties in with something you brought up the idea of the, the arms race in 2008 that I've been really thinking about this year the summer, which is at basically any one time, depending on where a team sees themselves, and the, there is a like kind of I t- I've talked about like the organizational focus, and so that can be we need to stop this guy. I mean, if you want to go to the Jordan rules or Shaq stoppers or Kobe stoppers or any number of things in the past, and the best recent example for me was Daryl Morey's openly admitted you know like obsession with the Warriors and trying to get players that specifically fit in that series. And something that I find so interesting about this year, kind of tying in with 08, is I don't think we know exactly what that player type is yet. I, I mean, I think we have some pretty good general ideas, but the idea, but the concept of who's next is also important to figure out, well, who do you need to stop who's next? Yeah, and I, I definitely not only think about 2008 in that regard, but... Um, you know, at the at the turn of the century, it was all of the. This ties us back to the to the bigs, the the big stiffs from earlier. All how many guys were employed so they could eat up fouls and bang with Shaq once the Lakers sort of rose to prominence, right? Oh yeah, I mean there were guys who made a career off of that, right? So I think I think you have you have periods in the league. I was trying to think about this as you were as you were talking over it. You have periods in the league. Certainly we saw it with Shaq and the Lakers and even to a degree Kobe, you know, uh, when the Lakers weren't sort of in position to contend in the middle of the last decade, 
teams weren't worrying about a so-called Kobe stopper. Stopper. When you're the title favorite, then you know you want your Reuben Pattersons of the world. You need that down to the specific like military level tactic matchup in those postseason series. And so I think there are times where when it's not clear, you don't you don't know exactly what reinforcements you need. But for the last few years, we've had the Warriors. And so teams can sort of build around the Warriors. If you're the Rockets and you actually ascend to a position where you can compete with them, then you, you know, you become obsessed and you put forth these very, very specific players you can put on the court to address the Warriors. But we're in a position right now where, as I, as I said earlier, I don't know if front offices really have a good idea of what they're going to need to tackle yet and they may not even know in february and we just may be in a period where it's a few more years before we have clarity on that i don't know what do you think about uh in where, where you know in a year or two will be is it do you need great defensive wings like what's the next thing for you it's a challenge and i, I think that a, dis- a distinct element of a lot of the best teams in the league right now for the upcoming season is elite forwards that prefer to have the ball in their hands. And so I think that there will be a, there will be a t- to a degree an arms race for not only for those players, because there's always one for those, but for players that can play a part in slowing those guys down. The problem, though, is that selecting for Kawhi stoppers or LeBron stoppers, good luck. You know, like the people have been looking for those type of players for the last 15 years and it hasn't done them a whole lot of good. You know, like that there, there just aren't that many that exist. That's why rolling the dice on a, on a wing, especially one with like legit forward size, has been such a frequent and, and sometimes underutilized tool in the league. I mean, I think guys like Semi Ojale, even if they don't always work out, I mean, rolling the dice on a guy like that is a whole lot better than rolling the dice on a seven footer that wasn't good enough to go in the first 10 picks. But those sorts of players, as I said, they're really hard to find. I think that's an element of it. But something that I'm thinking about, I haven't really pieced it together yet, is the idea that for some of those players, especially because they're ball dominant, it might end up being more of a team-centric approach to defending them rather than a a one-on-one, mano-a-mano. And I think that makes sense with the modern concept, whether you take that from the Houston perspective of we're going to run a bunch of actions and try to get your worst defender on the guy we want to have the ball, or if it's just from the idea that we're not going to have what we want all the time. So you just want to have this overall theory. And I think there were elements of that that Toronto did well of let's have a lot of smart defenders. Let's have a lot of defenders that can do different things well. And so it's not just, okay, this guy, you know, like Fred Van Vliet is going to hound Steph Curry when he's on the floor, but that's not just our, our theory of our defense. We're just going to do, we're going to try a bunch of different things and see what works. I'm totally with you on it being team centric. Uh, and I, I'm happy you went to the Raptors because my mind was going there as well. Not only smart defenders, but I mean, when you think about the physical tools of those different defenders, Lowry, physically strong and intelligent and smart, but then the front line to bring in Gasol and Pascal Siakam, who is listed at 6'9", but he's like 6'10 in shoes and just incredibly long and elastic and athletic. And so when you get into a series late in the playoffs and you need to experiment with different scheming, you can switch to something like, well, we got this great ball, you know, great physically strong on-ball defender in Kawhi. We'll put him in place on Giannis, but it's all the stuff around that that allows a scheme like that to succeed against those high-level players. I don't think you're really ever going to find guys, unless you just hit the lottery, who are 
a LeBron stopper, a Giannis stopper, even a Kawhi stopper. This just these players are too good. But if you can have a team approach, then perhaps you're onto something. And maybe I don't know. Maybe that gets you back to wanting really long, athletic, switchable wings. You know, guys who are six seven to six ten, or functionally in that range with really long wingspans. I, I don't know, um, and I feel like at some point we we should come back to the capellas and big men of the world but i'm just i'm i'm thinking this through out loud with you as we as we talk it out and explore it and i keep kind of landing back on like well the shape of the league and the talented players of the league and the pick and roll centric sort of style of the league i still think you probably want a group of wings and some uh, functionally smart long capable bigs on your back line and that's how you're going to approach this from a team standpoint anytime you go up against one of these top players along those lines one of the most interesting parallels not with all of these wing type players that we've been talking about is where they like to what their goals are with the ball in their hands so i mean lebron he obviously can shoot but you know he's looking more to pass and to get to to get to the basket and he can whether that's fouls or finishes around the rim and everything like that and Kawhi can work to different spaces. Giannis is, you know, dominant dominance in the restricted area last year was was pretty incredible. And I mean the Bucks overall there, which was not just a Giannis effort, but it was a team thing. But that was was really remarkable too. And so something that I've been thinking about along those lines of a team concept is yeah, maybe if you have somebody like Brooke Lopez or something else that can work. But if where a lot of those guys want to get to is maybe not all the way to the basket, but in that area, having another long defender, whether that's a traditional center or, you know, like a Pascal Siakam or something else, brings a lot of secondary benefits because even if those guys are good passers and LeBron is a better passer than somebody like Kawhi, there are ancillary benefits of just making that guy, that dominant forward, ball dominant forward, work so much harder to get his shot, even if it ends up going in. So to me, this is, this kind of gets me back to Draymond Green. And I actually talked, I think the last time I was on Dunked On, I talked to Nate about this very sort of idea with it being a Draymond-centric phenomenon. The, he Part of the reason he has been so valuable, part of the reason Golden State has been so successful on defense, and then of course there's that exchange because you need some offensive value as well. He's listed at 6'7", but between the length of his arms and his speed and his timing and his instinct, he's not like a six seven forward like he would be thought of. You know, when Dennis Rodman came in the league, sort of a a similar build, maybe a similar kind of athletic mover, very quick feet, can get around the court, can switch. But he was, you know, sort of thought of as like a six 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 seven small forward. He ended up becoming a power forward, guarded wings a lot, famously guarded Michael Jordan very well uh, during those Pistons-Bulls matchups. And really with Draymond, the thing that you just alluded to that's been so successful is he's really functionally that extra backline, big center, can contest at the rim, can rotate into the paint, can take all kind of people um, that come into the paint and challenge them. And so the question to me has always been like, well, is that specific to unicorns? Are there, are there guys who just unlock that kind of option? Or is that a league-wide trend? And I've been leaning more toward it being specific to unicorns, which maybe gets us back full circle to having more bigs on the court and more Clint Capellas and more teams now this summer saying, ah, we're going to kind of try to play two big men like the Pacers. We're going to try to put Turner and Sabonis on the court or Portland theoretically might have uh, 
to start the season, Whiteside and Collins, right? So I don't, I don't know. Go, you, you tell me what you think about that. I think of Draymond and some of those other unicorns as true anomalies. I mean, the the reason why one one of the many beyond their collective intelligence and activity and amazing hands for a lot of those guys and everything else that the Warriors defense worked was that in in almost every sport, the way I like to frame this is part of what an offense is trying to do is force a defense into bad choices. You know, that's leave a guy open for three or let a guy get a dunk. Like that's kind of the, if you want to go the most extreme archetype, it's something like that. But what Draymond does is he allows a team, he allows you to have both a switchy system if you want it and a capable rim protector. And he's one of the only guys in the league, off the top of my head, one of the only guys in league history that can do that, much less at the elite level where he does it. Just even on like the, I, I don't think there's a dollar store Draymond because that combination of attributes doesn't exist in a player very often. And so I think that people who are seeking the next Draymond Green are do, are probably doing themselves a disservice because I don't think they will. And then it's, okay, well, what can we do? I mean, so P.J. Tucker's probably the closest there, but P.J. Tucker's not nearly as good of a rim protector as Draymond is. And, you know, there are other guys. I mean, like Kawhi's an unbelievable defender. We saw what he did against Giannis, but it's a different, it's a different role. And... So I think that you kind of you you have to build you have to do a different mousetrap. You can't really build that one better or even, you know, like a little bit worse. And that leads you to Bigs. Still so much more to talk about with Ben Taylor, but first message from betonline.ag. We are continuing the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge, and awesomely, I am in first place. I got a, a perfect five for five in week one, which also means that I get to hand out five separate uh, $100 bet online things. And so uh, bonuses for your account, which is awesome, free money. And to do that, you need to, you can find my tweet from Thursday, but also you just basically reply, tag betonline.ag, use the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge and include your account number and you have a chance to win. I believe they haven't given them all out as of when I record this. So you can check that out. And hopefully when I win in future weeks, you can you can get it at that point too. But it's a great time for that. I mean, you still have five new picks this week, but also to just check out bet online lines.ag you have week two of the nfl packers vikings chiefs raiders so many other great games going on rams rams saints is gonna be awesome i'm really looking for that but also college football pennant race and baseball just so much going on so whatever you're passionate about you can find it there in-game action is really fun too and whatever way you want to check it out make sure to use that podcast one promo code and you get a 50 percent sign up bonus which is fantastic great way to start out with them it's a lot of fun and whatever you're into if it's maybe it's a game that you were going to watch anyway like a thursday game or a monday game and you just want to make it more interesting or you think you have some information you think you think you know what's going on you think you can get it better better than where the line is set and dave mason and i will talk later in the show about the challenges of setting lines and so you can think about that so hopefully i keep doing well in the Sportsnet challenge and hopefully you do well using betonline.ag use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent sign up bonus the problem that I'm seeing for, as you brought up Portland, Indiana, two teams that I, I think I could make an argument that I'm more fascinated at the beginning of the season in those two teams than any other teams in the league, because I just want to know how this experiment works. And for both of them, I mean, in some ways, especially in Indiana, because Sabonis of Power Forward is a thing we have seen before. It just was in a very different circumstance with a completely different franchise at a different point in his career and in OKC and he never got to the free throw line and those teams had that was a really strange team and all these other things. But what what those teams are doing with their multi-big approaches, what concerns me is 
I don't think they're getting enough of the benefit to justify the downside. Now, if you have two bigs that are just so insanely good, like, or, or for example, like, I mean, Gobert and, and Derek Favors is a good example of this. Like, okay, you're going to have one of the best defenses in the league. That's a trade-off you can make. I'm skeptical that those two teams, the, and I think the Blazers and the Pacers will be very good. I'm not, I'm not questioning that at all. But I wonder if the benefits that they're going to see, even if, let's say, that puts your five best players on the floor, I think it probably makes it easier conceptually for teams to attack you and easier to defend you. So the big one for me is the spacing. The big one for me is the shooting, right? Like, at a certain point, having two shooters on the court is not just twice as good as having one shooter. This isn't just a linear linear buildup. And so when you run out of good shooters on the court, when both of your bigs can't shoot and can't space the floor, and additionally maybe just aren't even like great at passing or other kind of like high-level functional connective tissue offensive components, and then you're down to like two shooters on the court or three shooters on the court, that's where a lot of the trade-offs start to go away to me because if you aren't getting insanely elite defense almost like old school twin towers that's what it was when we were growing up right it was like that twin towers concept you're going to play samson and Olajuwon at the same time you're going to play david robinson and tim duncan at the same time but can we just pause by the way david robinson and tim duncan used to play at the same time that scares me just sitting at my desk here thinking about trying to score on that so if you're not getting that right if you don't have that trade-off where you're sacrificing some huge offensive component you you alluded to it earlier you allow the defense so many outs you're you're not really putting any pressure on them and we've seen this historically even a guy that drove me uh, nuts at this position was a point guard and that was rondo where teams would in late in the playoffs just be able to say okay we're going to totally sag off you and ignore you and that unlocks something i thought golden state had that with Portland this year where Draymond was just not worried about guys he was guarding uh, in terms of man responsibility and that unlocks him now that I think about this didn't Draymond do that exact thing to Rondo in the Pelican series a couple years ago he did that was what really uh, stifled the Pelicans after they'd had that amazing series against the Portland Trailblazers the, the, the round before is that yeah, when you're basically when you're defending five on four, it's incredibly hard for anything to get going. And how the Warriors did that was and something that the Warriors did and a few other teams have in the past that I absolutely love when you can pull it off is instead of using the deficient offensive player as a as a hiding place for your worst defender to put an intelligent help defender on that player instead because then you can maximize the advantage more you know right so, I mean, if he's a team defender i think that's the that's sort of the golden ticket right so like uh, that's that's something that i've tried to figure out in terms of like trey young i think you know the, the hawks will see how close they are to the playoff picture over this year and next year but you ideally you're not using that weak point when it exists to give your best offensive player a break and i mean the rockets figured a different way around this with harden by going to that switch system and and everything else but it's it's really interesting that that shift and i mean the, the other prominent time that the warriors did that was in the they switched things up in the memphis series way back in 2015 and they put andrew bogut on tony allen 
and they put Draymond on him at different moments in time too. And it was the same idea of, okay, we have an intelligent defender. This is just going to gum up everything else. And it, and that does work really well. However, you're conceding a bunch of other stuff on the floor to make that happen. And so then the question is, you know, like, so whatever team you're talking about, your worst defender then is on somebody who is not the other team's worst offensive player. And can you pull that off? And it just so happens that some of those teams like the Pels and that Grizzlies squad didn't have the horses to exploit those weaknesses. Right. And then you even get into the fun cross matching, which is, you know, functionally, we can talk about offensive offense and defense as separate entities because they're skill sets that largely are independent of each other. But sometimes in series like that, you start to see these wild and crazy cross matches where you're reminded like, okay, whatever strategy we implement on one end is going to have immediate sort of, um, I guess, repercussions or consequences maybe is a better word on the other end early in the possession because we're cross matching. Phil Jackson used to talk about this all the time with the triangle where the offense inherently balances the floor for defensive cross matches when you get back in transition. And sometimes in these, you get into these series and you get kind of chess matchy. And I mean, Embiid on Siakam is another one that came to mind as you were talking through, right? What happens? What are the, are there any, uh, are there any sort of cross match transition things that come out of that, that make the, I don't think there were in that series, but I mean, this is just an, an additional layer to think of when you start getting into this uh, lineup alchemy. Well, and it's also interesting with the switchover from going from, you know, your worst offensive player on the other teams, because a lot of times that would lead to not having cross matches. So if you had, let's let's use, uh, for because I'm thinking of this, let's, let's say it was Steph Curry and Tony Allen. In the old system, well, Tony Allen was probably going to guard Steph Curry. You know, I, I mean, it's a little bit different because of the point guards and some of the other stuff there. But a lot of times, the other team's worst offensive player is out there for defense. So he's probably going to be guarding the other team's best offensive player who is their worst defender. Like, that's because generally, unless somebody is all things for all people, that's that's the way talent builds out. And so it is really interesting to, to kind of think about that. And, and that gets into some ideas. And we've often seen this with young teams when they get put in new circumstances of just dealing with challenges that they haven't had to face during the season and you know so the communication and okay how do we maybe we start in this cross match and then we we switch back into the scheme that we want how do we look for that how do we find those opportunities that's a real challenge and especially when it's put in the greater context that as a practical consideration i know some people talk about they lament this and i i I don't because i understand how how the world of basketball works that teams generally do not have specific tactics for specific opponents in the regular season because it's just too much work. You know, if you're only playing a team once every two months and yeah, there's a, maybe there's a a bulletproof strategy that this team could do to stop Giannis, but it, they also have a base defense that works for them 80 games a year. It's not really fair to say, oh, we're going to develop a completely different concept for these two games. So a lot of times that can relate to cross matching and everything else. And so it gets really interesting when you think about how you you brought up Rondo as a, and Rondo is a spectacular example of this of the players who benefit from lack of scheme tailoring and specificity in the regular season then get exploited by it later on. 
Right. And I, I think that that is definitely something that I think is sort of an axiom of the league, especially when you get into three, four games a week and you're on road trips. There's only so much you can prepare for teams in the regular season versus the playoffs. And actually, I actually think that is an area uh, and I'm doing on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel this summer. I'm doing a series on stats. And at a certain point, I'll get to this. But I think one area that is a real challenge, maybe the ultimate area, is the lag between what happens in the regular season where we have these beautiful, large, robust sample sizes sometimes, and then the playoffs where the sample sizes are really, really small. The matchups sometimes are singular. It's like one or two opponents where this is relevant. But the player that you saw in the regular season and all the schematic things we've been talking through for the last 20, 30 minutes – they they sort of come home to roost in the playoffs because all that data doesn't apply when you say, OK, I've got an entire week to prepare for you and I can build an entire scheme around you. Not even saying you would build a scheme around Rajon Rondo, for instance, but you get to that postseason and you realize this is how I want to guard you. This is how I want to approach you because we can now put your weaknesses under a microscope. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a that's a big deal. And it also gets into one of the more compelling team-building things that I've been processing over the last couple of years, which is how good of a team do you have to be to really care about this? Portland is an amazing example. I mean, to me, as, as much as I love their team and, you know, they made the Western Conference Finals last year and, and they've been competitive for all these years— I'm not sure, based on the expected level of, let's say, the three or four best teams in the league, that they need to concern themselves as much with this. Just, you know, it, it, sure, if you get the opportunity to, to acquire a Kawhi Leonard or, you know, one of those game breakers or something else, then then yeah, sure. And if you can do it within the course of it, you know, what I'm talking about is more when the rubber meets the road and you have those, you know, what do you do with the mid-level exception? What do you do with the, you know, your first round pick? All those sorts of ideas. I think there's a group of teams that might too aggressively go after the the like upside ideal that isn't necessarily relevant to them just because the tight like the title getting into that rarefied air is unlikely enough that you know maybe you maybe you're shoring up and you brought this up this this will go back full circle too to denver you know do do you say okay, we're going to take a big swing and get this one guy, or do we say, hey, let's let's do the best we can, but odds are we're probably not going to win a championship, but we can be really damn good. We can win 60 games. We can do all this stuff, but there's probably going to be a team that in the seven-game format will just most likely be better than us. Hmm. I wonder, hmm, we might disagree on this. This is interesting. I want to I want to explore this space a little bit. Let's explore this studio space. I've always kind of, I see what you're getting at. I, I look at it two ways. I think if you're a team that for reasons that exist outside of uh, sort of like basketball philosophy, you don't you're not going to win a championship and that's OK. Right. That can be a perfectly OK thing. Um, you're putting an entertaining product on the floor. There's a huge financial incentive to be competitive, all this kind of stuff. So you don't need to try to win 65 games and win a title. And it's extremely difficult. So winning 45 or 50 or even 55 games and getting, uh, you know, a, a win or two in the playoffs, a series or two deep in the playoffs has tremendous value. I think if you're OK with that, then I'm 100 percent on board with what you just said. You don't necessarily need 
to try to, uh, you know, fill your roster with these guys who maybe a little bit are more boom and bust or have some ideal at a very, very high level, but you're never going to get to the high level. On the flip side, and the, the thing that's causing a little genuflecting for me is I am a huge proponent when it comes to team building of getting pieces and guys that you know scale up. That's a, that's a term and a concept I've talked about a lot before. And so what that really means is your talent, if, you're, if you can't really play and have your talent hold value at a higher level, when you do get later into the playoffs, as we've discussed in this conversation, then what, you know, what good are you in the sense of trying to win a title? Again, if that's not, if you're not trying to get to that conference finals, finals, win championship level, I'm with you. But a lot of teams, I think conceptually could do a better job building pieces toward that. You kind of, I think what ends up happening is you tie up contract space and even opportunity costs to develop players who have a have a higher championship trajectory in the long term. And so from a team building perspective, I've always been a huge proponent. I just call them pieces, right? Like getting a piece that actually fits in the puzzle later on, I think is something that some general managers actually struggle with. What say you, Danny? You disagree? Actually, I agree, and I agree pretty strongly. It's, I, it's so funny that I used Portland as the example because this is a criticism I've levied on Portland is the, they're <laughs> basically Neil O'Shea's lack of interest getting forwards and you know that they've gotten talented players at a lot of other positions. And along the idea of scalability, I, and, and this really, for me, this is more about wings than anything else, is that there's a value to having a lot of them because the success rate isn't super high and it can be somewhat unpredictable. I mean, if you could reliably predict, even if it was a rotation level three and D wing in the draft, you could just basically, you could have a GM job for life. Like there, there are so few of those players. They're so valuable. You know, like if you could figure out, okay, this is the next Robert Covington versus the next, for now, he could get better Josh Jackson. Like knowing, understanding who fits that bill would be super valuable. And that's why I think you need a lot of rolls of the dice. And so for a team like Portland that hasn't done that, more of what I was thinking about along, kind of along those lines is when you have to really sacrifice something. So this isn't necessarily, you know, like maybe there are two, dra- two draft guys on the board. One of them is wing sized. One of them is a, you know, like a, maybe like a rotation level backup point guard or something. And, and you go for the point guard. It. I was thinking of it more in terms of like, let's say the Denver Nuggets bringing them up again, where they have this flaw that they, while they, you know, they've put resources, including now adding Jeremy Grant on the at the four, they don't really have that small forward, the the guy to defend the Kawhi Leonard's the world, unless Jeremy Grant does it, which would be absolutely fascinating if that's something that they end up trying to do, or maybe they even try Millsap. I'd love to see that too, but. I, I get myself tied up a little bit in terms of the idea. So so yes, it is an acknowledged weakness of the team. I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I, I'm one the, probably one of the first people who harped on that when they signed Will Barton, and I still disagree with that signing. But at the same point, think about it from a practical perspective, which is if you acknowledge my statement that, hey, this is a weakness of the team and you know that might be a big problem for them, then you get to the counter, which is, well, how do you get from A to B? And the ways that they would have to do that would be trading one of their other really good players. And there is a chance that something like that could work out because maybe they could find a low-grade Jamal Murray or a low-grade Gary Harris that might even be Malik Beasley and get close enough there that the margin at the three over that, that, that you get a net benefit through that sort of a trade should one exist. But what I, what I was getting at is the idea that obviously that's some sort of roll of the dice because if it was an obvious thing, then the other team wouldn't do it. 
And so I think there are circumstances where if your team is less flexible and the only way to get that type of a player on the timeline that makes sense is by sacrificing current talent, that it might not be a good idea. Now, in the abstract of when you're building a team, oh, damn straight, you you go after those type of guys, the pieces, and I'm a believer in getting those sorts of players that can that can be an important part of good teams because you never you never know for sure what a good team is going to come around you. And worse comes to worse, if you're not that team and that player develops in the way that you expect, somebody else is going to want them too, and there's value to create there. So this is really interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm refining as you're talking through that and realizing how many sort of like 50-ish win teams – uh, not just throughout history, but that are on the landscape of right now in the last few years, kind of fit the bill that you were just speaking to, where getting from A to B requires actually significant upgrades in key pieces. Your your key pieces just don't give you a high enough ceiling. One of the first teams, I should say, one of the more recent teams that uh, this kind of popped out to me was with the with the uh, with the Celtics. A couple years ago where they had the Isaiah Thomas Celtics and, um, you know, they lost to LeBron in the conference finals. And I just looked at that team and I was like, you you literally need to bring in superstars, basically, to make this a championship level team to jump from that to get from that point A to B that you're talking about. I very much feel that way to to I, I guess there's a caveat that I'll get to, but I, I guess I feel that way about teams like Portland and Denver and the caveat with Denver is, I guess, if Jokic levels up and becomes like an all-time type player, I think that's the type of jump that gets you there. But assuming you're on similar ground with your with Jokic and then with your Jamal Murray's and Gary Harris's, that those kind of players in the landscape, Paul Millsap obviously is on the other side of the aging curve, but... I, I just always look at teams like that, and again, perfectly beautiful to root for. I'm not making a philosophical judgment about it, but when it comes to that championship window, I'm like, mm, you, you, you're stuck. You're stuck with what you've got. The Wizards did this a couple years ago. You invest a lot into certain players, and then you just have a ceiling where you're stuck without radically overhauling the key parts of the machinery. I've been smiling because I thought of another example of this that actually helps clarify it in both directions, which is the DeRozan Toronto Raptors. Perfect. I mean, they, they had you, a ceiling. You have to swap it out. Yeah. You have to swap it out. I mean, if they were not going to win a championship with that core, and they had some very successful seasons, and you and, and I mean, if they had, and that's what's so interesting about it, is like if Kawhi Leonard hadn't been on the board, I probably, I personally probably still would have been on board with a DeRozan trade just because the idea that, I'm, you know, once you've done it like three times, I'm not as keen on the 55 win, make the conference finals, but have very low chance of winning a championship. But again, that's dealer's choice. Some owners, some general managers are good with that. It just, it totally depends. But they were able to make that jump because the right player was available. And for whatever reason, San Antonio wanted the pieces that Toronto had. Congratulations, Masai. You have a championship forever and the city of Toronto. And I think that Toronto is also instructive of why you also always keep your options open. Because, yeah, I I had Toronto in that boat, but they kept on building assets. They kept on doing all of the other things well so that if the opportunity ever presented itself, they could do it. And that gets into – you brought up a team that that is worth talking about in this range of it's probably going to take another three to four years. But the overall theory ethos of Danny Ainge during this time period is absolutely fascinating. You know, building this unbelievable asset base – 
and then turning a lot of those assets, not all of them, but a lot of those assets into successful players or trades or anything else. And we'll see where it goes. But, you know, I I think I have a pretty decent idea of like what the next couple of years might be for the Celtics unless Tatum or Brown takes a big leap. And I'm not saying necessarily that he like that there's a clear mistake that was made there, but I think it's absolutely fascinating on this idea of like valuing assets and how like how hard it is to build a championship team and how hard it is, but also how much luck it takes. Absolutely. All those things are true. And I think in addition to that, you have this sort of um, the the people reaction, the fan, the, the, the humanist component where you look at that team and from my point of view, if I'm trying to win a championship, I'm seeing it exactly the way Danny Ainge is seeing it. You want to upgrade Isaiah Thomas to Kyrie Irving. That's just a flat out upgrade. Now, we don't have to get into that situation because there's a million things in both directions for both players from Isaiah's injuries to Kyrie's off court stuff. So we can leave that part alone. It's, it becomes kind of a funky example because of that. But even that kind of decision making, I think my point is. It's hard for teams and front offices, understandably, to cut bait or swap out those pieces unless there's very special circumstances. I, I was personally 100% on board with Toronto going after Kawhi. The second, the second sort of Kawhi hit the market, that was my first thought. Toronto, because this team has uh, run it back many times, um, they've sort of exhausted this. And why not, you know, you really want a team that wants to swap out one of those pieces for a better piece. I didn't realize this at the time, but um, on some analysis I did during the year, DeRozan is actually a guy who historically, you know, he's their lead scorer. Kyle Lowry's strength is not scoring. So DeRozan carries the load of scoring. You get into the postseason, he has a huge dip. He, his type of scoring and what he can do from that, you know, centerpiece standpoint doesn't play well against great postseason defenses that can scheme up against you. Well, you know who's one of the best postseason scorers ever? <laughs> Kawhi Leonard. So, yeah. so you, 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 sw- you make this swap where, from the team-specific standpoint, you upgrade the very thing that's holding you back, and that takes me back to the Celtics and the Blazers and the Nuggets of the world, where uh, even back to our conversation about centers, where I'm not suggesting that you trade uh, Jokic right now, not at all, but at a certain point, you may run into a situation where your team is stuck because you've invested a huge amount. Maybe you've given Danny, maybe you've given a max contract to a young guard who has limitations and hasn't proven himself at a high level. And you want him to be a scorer or a secondary creator in the offense. And he never hits that next gear. Then what do you do? And I think there aren't a lot of Danny Ainge's out there right now, maybe for better or worse. I don't know, but there aren't a lot who are going to happily say, ah, couple years this this didn't work we need a better version of this guy or we need to build the team in a slightly different direction it would certainly be more chaotic if there were more Danny Ainge's of the world and I, I've wondered about whether what I how the Sixers would look different if Hinky had just gotten a couple more years of latitude I mean I, I think they in many ways would have been similar but I also think they would be a deeper team now which would have really helped them last year in particular and because he was he was so much better at playing the asset game and, you know, rolling the dice on a couple different guys and all that sort of stuff. And also the way the structure of the Tobias Harris trades was so not, not I, I think some people have misinterpreted Hinky in the sense that he would have totally changed the way he ran the team once they were actually good. You know, it wasn't just, you know, kind of 
dump everything and get all these sorts of assets. I think he had the tools to be a much to be a really good general manager of the of the good times as well. It just never got that opportunity. But he just you know it was it wasn't his job anymore. It was Colangelo and then Elton. And it, I, I wonder about that too. Of you know, like we sometimes it's it's we we get talked about that, or we talk about that in terms of coaches. Like Scott Skiles was always brought up in this of like he's a great guy to get a team off the ground, but then he might not be the be the person to finish it. I sometimes wonder if it's the same thing with general managers. It's just that since a lot of people, and even to a lesser extent, even people like me who think about GMs a lot, that it's so hard to measure them because of all of the other pieces that are in play, you know, like it's how the players work out, what, what kind of hands you're dealt. I wonder if there are maybe some general managers that are better at certain parts of the process. I think absolutely. I mean, and to your point, just evaluating coaching, uh, the head coach, the entire coaching staff, a lot of these things are black boxes. They're opaque. It's very difficult to understand what teams want to do, what they should want to do, and how successful they are in executing what they want to do. And uh, that becomes a layer removed when you get to the front office. I mean, even just philosophically, some front offices might have pressures from the owner financially. I mean, I can't think of one right now that would fit that bill that's potentially high profile. Can you? No, none that could come to mind. None come to my mind. But I mean, that could be a thing. And then again, you're you're trying to evaluate the general manager who could be between the coach and the owner and have his own philosophical pressures. It very much reminds me of work in industry with technology companies where I've personally spent a lot of time where you're sitting at a hub position uh, and it's very hard to actually have direct KPIs or tools that actually measure key performance indicators that actually measure your job because your job is the by, like the success of your job becomes the byproduct of all the people around you. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's an extremely difficult thing to measure. Uh, and, and in addition to that, we often measure it based on sort of ex post facto results-oriented things that happen that aren't always fair. I mean, sometimes you just hit the lottery with a player. Uh, sometimes there's a cohesion that helps you draft a player that fits in the system. Sometimes, you know, you, you draft a player who's great and he doesn't develop. Maybe you don't have the right developmental infrastructure in your organization that has nothing to do with you. There's so many ingredients in that pie that for me, yeah, I'm, I think it's extremely hard to judge them. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's also, I mean, you get into circumstances where how do you, like you talked about this with coaching staffs being an opaque and being a black box, where how do you apportion credit? And it can even be something is just like the player has a different work ethic than we thought he did as a prospect. You know, like, though he lives and breathes it and we, and, and we didn't maybe think that he would. I mean, sometimes you even get those guys who, I mean, I, I think I remember this being a thing with Rudy Gobert back in the day. I remember it with Jared Allen as well, where they just didn't think they loved basketball that much. And, you know, a lot of sometimes the, sometimes that interpretation is correct and sometimes it's incorrect. It seems to happen a lot more with bigs than other positions for whatever reason. Un- understandably, I think. big Bigs, you know, there was that stat at one point in time, like 41% of all seven footers in America played in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, you're sort of you're you're tied to this financial pressure when you're really tall to play this sport. And I mean, a lot of the bigs that I grew up with, uh, I, I grew up around a guy named Torin Francis who went to Notre Dame. Like he, these guys weren't basketball junkies in sixth, eighth, ninth, tenth grade. Instead, they get to high school and they're tall and they start playing more. I mean, Pascal Siakam. Uh, I want to play soccer. I want. Okay, well, you're really tall. Maybe you could play basketball now. 
in Pascal's case, it's cut the other way, but who could have predicted it would cut the other way because he, he loves it and he's got the work ethic. And, um, I don't know. I've always wondered if like other sports prime you better for basketball, soccer in particular, you have Steve Nash, you have, you know, other guys who, okay, maybe I'm borrowing from this other sport, but yeah, there's a lot of factors when it comes to player development that, you could have drafted a guy or made a move that was actually a really good move. And then you have unforeseen things happen that change that. Yeah. So it's a really interesting point. I was thinking about Joel Embiid as well. I mean, cause he, he played a lot of stuff growing up and then, and then eventually at, at a Luke Richard and Bob Mute camp in Cameroon actually kind of found basketball. And it's amazing how those sorts of things can happen, but yeah. And, and, and player development, I mean, it's, it's been such a, such an interesting thing, you know, being around the league for 10 years, but not getting a full sense. I mean, because something that is kind of, I would say, an underrated part of the the Warriors' success. I mean, there, there are so many different elements, but something that people ask me about it a lot is I say, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green have all improved so much since they came into the league. And I think that's a really underappreciated part. Like, I mean, everybody does. But the way, I mean, Clay Thompson's defense in particular, I think, is a really prominent part of that. But also you know, Draymond, really every facet of his game. And so no matter how good you are, you st- like every player, because of how competitive the NBA is, can't rest on their laurels. I mean, it's just impossible. And so that is, and I'm sure, you know, if you could get into some of the mental, I, I don't even know what, I don't even know the terminology really for some of that kind of stuff. But it's it's another huge part of this that is a differentiator that I'm sure some teams think they're better at evaluating, but just helps define the league. Yeah, and that that gets into sort of pet peeve areas for me personally, having a a cognitive science background where I'm always looking at player development through the lens of someone's nervous system, how someone's wired, sort of the the reps that they've had versus the reps that they can get. And I think to your point, that's probably not a fully tapped frontier when it comes to player development. I mean, certainly not to equate uh, talk shows in the public domain to what's happening behind closed doors with teams, but I see the way people talk about someone developing a jumper. Um, Ben Simmons is the extreme example, but just they casually say like, well, we'll just get this big and then he'll develop a jumper. Well, if he's 20 years old and he's shown no hand-eye coordination and propensity to understand the feedback loop that helps him shoot better, um, you are basically rolling the dice at best if you think that you can overhaul that guy's mechanics, undo all of the bad habits he has, somehow ramp up his hand-eye coordination uh, and all the pro- all the sort of neurological processes that go into shooting, and then get that out to 24 feet. Whereas when someone like Brooke Lopez becomes a three-point shooter, well, he was always a great free-throw shooter and always had mid- to long-range jump shooting ability. So you're taking habits and practices that are there and extending them. It's very, very rare in NBA history to actually have guys who literally could not shoot at all when they were young adults, 16, 18, 20, and then become proficient shooters later on. Right. And that gets into one of the, one of the most interesting player development things that I, I think about 
fairly frequently, which is the ebb and flow of which flaws are considered the most correctable at a given time. You know, so it can happen, you know, there have been moments in time when people were willing to look past maybe below average athleticism because a guy was really smart or he was a great shooter or something else. And then there are other times where it's shooting and this, oh, we can teach, we can teach about shooting. And some of it is also just positional stuff, but it is funny. And I, I mean, I, I go back to the, like, it, some of it was just rhetorical use, but how somebody like Michael Red was, was for a period of time used by various people as an example of, oh, we can teach a guy to shoot. And so what well, we don't need to worry about Michael Kidd Gilchrist having a broken jump shot at, at 19 because he'll figure it out. And even if he doesn't, he'll be a good defender. Well, that's sabotage's career. And it, it is interesting how all of that stuff, or maybe this guy's too skinny or he's too heavy or anything else. And some of it is just it is, is hard because every player is a unique individual and whether they overcome that or not is a is dependent on so many other things beyond just that's whether that skill is correctable or not. But I was just thinking about it in the context of, you know, just teaching a guy a jump shot that all of those flaws are really hard to correct. When you look at research on expertise, uh, physical like golf swings and tennis swings and sort of these physical activities, the the research is pretty overwhelming in that it's much harder to correct something that's already been grooved but broken than to build something from the ground up. So I don't think sometimes as sort of basketball punditry or even just, you know, general fans talking about shooting, we stop to think how many times Alonzo Ball has taken a shot like that. He's spent years, it may have started when he was 8 or 10 or 12, but even as players change their shot subtly as they get older and the ball gets higher and they get stronger and things like that. This is all part of sort of the same neural highway, if you will, that's making this process automatic. There's there's nothing about the process that when you do it from person to person says it has to be perfect. Your brain doesn't care about that. It's just getting used to the way you shoot. And so when someone comes along at 20 or 21 or 22, not only is it harder to overwrite that, but all the research on these kind of physical expertise, these pattern grooving, pattern motion things suggests that it takes like four, six, 10 times as many reps to undo what you've done. Well, if you stop and think about the reps, it's like, oh, that you got to shoot like 800,000 jumpers to, to fix your shot. And no, no one, no one has that kind of time. Right. And and, that, and that's really interesting. And you brought up Lonzo. Ben Simmons is also an interesting example of that, especially the theory that he might be shooting with the wrong hand. And it, I mean, it, and, and also for depending on which player we're talking about, but broadly speaking, some of these have incredibly high stakes. And you're almost always choosing between imperfect options, because if there were perfect options, they would be taken. You know, and, and so like Zion is going to be really interesting in this respect as well, you know, with his jump shot and all the other stuff in his game. And I think this ties into the last thing I want to, the last kind of big area that I want to talk about was I was interested, especially because he's such a, such a divisive player, your video on Devin Booker, which was either early in the summer or late last season, I really enjoyed it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think the place that you were getting to, and, and he's so young that you, we're not closing any doors or anything like that, but you got into an interesting question at the end, which is close to where I am with Devin Booker, which is he's improved a lot. And he's done so much growth with the ball in his hands, but gets into this really challenging question, which is, is he good enough with the ball in his hands to fuel a consistently successful offense? Or is he so good that he's more of a floor raiser than anything else? Yes, yes. I, that, that's where I landed after watching. the. I, I came out uh, early summer 
Um, but of course my, my film study often starts before that. So that, that's where I landed. And it's a really fascinating idea. I, I actually was thinking about Devin Booker, uh, even just based on our conversation, thinking about that video and thinking about him from the defensive side, where we kind of back to shooting, like we sometimes assume that certain things can just be shored up and patched up. And I'm not really convinced of that. I think something like motor is very, very difficult to teach. I think, you know, the way a guy is used to expending energy relative to his footwork or technique, I mean, I, I that's that's a thing for me with Booker that we can get back to in a second. But to address your point about offense, there are a lot of guys in NBA history who kind of fall into this mold where they have success or they have certain skills that get you to a certain place. Like Booker, to me, is a good offensive player. He is a very good shooter. He's very talented. I mean, his touch and some of the stuff he has in the paint and the mid-range is exceptional. I think will serve him very well going forward. But he's developed so many of these, uh, I don't want to sound too negative, but let's just say they're not black belt skills. He's got a lot of like, you know, low-level brown belt skills that are designed to have an offense run through him. But what good does that get you if you need a high-level offensive engine to run a championship level or even just high-level deep playoff team that's going to win 55 or 60 games? And that's where the idea of Booker's growth fizzles a bit to me. I, I, I sort of I landed so hard in that space that I ended up doing a, a follow-up podcast on the Thinking Basketball podcast. Uh, it was, ep- I want to say, episode 24, looking at all these other players in history who have kind of had this same build of like, well, you start to become successful and you start to, your scoring goes up and your shot creation goes up and all these metrics go up and your play um, from the eye test and everything improves. But what happens when we put you on a team where there's a guy who does all those things better? Then what happens to your role? Like what happens to all those skills that you've improved upon? Because it turns out if I have LeBron or Devin Booker, I don't want Devin Booker to have the ball running 70 possessions a game. And that ties in with a player who was actually more successful than Devin Booker in college, but I think always had the understanding that he was going to be a more limited pro, and that's J.J. Redick. And I think Redick is such an interesting counter here because, and, and Millsap is an example, there are a bunch of these different guys, of the benefit of starting your career knowing that you're not going to be the guy. Because then the the mentality and the idea of where you're putting your reps, where you're, you know, where you're developing your time and, and your, your the footwork and the mechanics is in the area that ends up being your role. And for, for somebody like Redick, it's the benefit that he's he can be that guy on a good team or on a bad team. He's kind of himself. And some players don't have that. They don't. They don't have that. It's kind of like the reverse of elasticity. It's like you know the consistency in their role. And I think that's something when I was watching the video and I was thinking about that with Devin Booker about how he he's a he's too apathetic off ball because he's one of those guys who really likes having the ball in his hands. And how if and it's still an if, but if he's not at that level of dominant player engine of a great team, he's also spending all of this time with not working as much comparatively and and it just maybe justifiably so on the parts that he has the physical talent to do but just doesn't have the imperative to work on which would be more important in on a differently constructed team i, I think the the jj reddick call out is such a great one um i mean at that time 
I, I didn't think he was going to be very successful in the league. There were a string of Duke players. Trajan Langdon was the, the one I was right about, where you had guys who had these very, very high-profile college careers by virtue of playing at Duke, and they were um, you know celebrated with awards, and they put up numbers. And Redick, much like Langdon, to me was a limited offensive centerpiece. But what I didn't anticipate was how much Redick leaned into that role, maybe not as a rookie, but as the years went on, he just became better and better and more valuable and more valuable because of how he honed the craft of off-ball movement. So with Booker, we're talking about he's improving skills with the basketball. He's improving skills in pick and roll reads and situations like this. But Redick, it's the completely it's a completely different direction where and this I alluded to this in the in the video at the very end, those off ball skills, those are real serious skills and they're differentiators and understanding how to be successful while you're running around the court an entire possession, understanding how to use screens like that, how to uh, make cuts and counter cuts and different reads off of those to get open. That's an art. And it's very valuable because it allows you to plug into offenses and teams can say, hey, we're going to run a floppy set when we're in trouble for J.J. Redick. We're going to have him run around the baseline, come off screens, all this stuff. But J.J. Redick can still be J.J. Redick the rest of the possession when you run anything else. He's still learned how to be deadly off the ball, moving, cutting. And last point on that, one thing that really stuck out to me for Redick is it wasn't just the shooting. He learned how to come downhill. I, I want to say when he was with Orlando, that's when I really started to notice. But he learned how to come downhill off these screens and act very quickly going to the basket. So um, instead of popping, I'm going to curl and take one dribble and get a layup. Or I'm going to curl, take one dribble, and if the defense collapses, I'm not, I don't have to be Magic Johnson. But now I've got the defense to collapse so I can kick it to someone else and make a really, really quick decision. And learning and, and kind of honing those skills, I think, are things that scale up and just travel so well to every team versus learning skills that are kind of great for floor raising. They're great for a 35 win team. Like, I, you know, I think Phoenix might be a little better than people think. I don't know if I'm full Pelton on Phoenix, but, you know, they're, they're great in that setting. But where do they take you uh, down the road when you actually want to have a high level team? Yeah, it's a great question. And and also it it again brings back to the importance of context. And I they're in the same division, obviously very different stages of their career and very different players and they would have been in even in the abstract. Think about the situation that Devin Booker went into and the situation that Klay Thompson went into. And it's not like the Warriors were good when Klay got there. They were still figuring things out though they got a lot better pretty quickly. They made the playoffs in Klay's second year. But Klay Thompson joined a team that had Steph Curry on it and had a pretty clear understanding that he wasn't going to get that much time. And whether it was Mark Jackson or later Steve Kerr, Clay hasn't had that much of an opportunity to really build out the pick and roll part of his game. I actually think he would be better at it than, you know, like than something. It, it wouldn't be great. You know, he wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be like a strength on a great team, but it is a really interesting example of the idea that circumstances dicta dictate a, a portion of it, but not the whole thing. I mean, guys have a lot of, I mean, they have the summers, they have training staffs, all that sort of stuff, they can develop what they want. But I do think that the context does really matter. And it makes some of these really some of these what ifs really fascinating. I 100% agree. And back to your point about Clay's defense, I'll, I'll 
tease my next video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel for those who are who have who have listened to us uh, go back and forth pontificating about basketball for the last hour. Uh, it's on Clay Thompson's defense, and I am fairly blown away. Whatever whatever is a level right underneath, completely blown away. That's where I am on in terms of what I saw at Washington State from Clay, and then when he came into the league and where he is defensively or where he sort of landed defensively in the heart of his career. A guy like that, I covered Clay. I think he was a freshman at Washington State uh, at UCLA, Pauley Pavilion. I covered a game there and the, the shooting talent and the ability to move was apparent. But to think that he would become a basically a high level on ball defender, a very skilled on ball defender at that position who was also switchable who who would develop enough techniques to play you know sort of like lead spearhead offensive guards point guards pick and roll action is is kind of mind-blowing and i think it fits nicely into this conversation where if you ramp up that skill over the first couple of years in the league now you add an incredible dimensionality this incredible extra value to high-level teams versus um, you know, I I went from like a C minus or a D in this pick and roll thing to like a B minus. Right. And that's such a massive value add, especially when you consider the scarcity of guys who can do what he can do now. And the other, the, and this also pieces together when we talked about Houston and a couple of the other things, something that I think is an underrated skill, uh, it's, you know, all things equal, which they never are, is and I think Houston is what clarified it for me, the intense defensive benefit of physical strength. I mean, Eric Gordon's a great example of this. Like, I mean, you could see some of the guards that are adept switch defenders. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, like you're built like Corey Maggetti or whoever else. I, I, he's the guy that I think of for whatever reason with that. It's just like, you know, do you have a stout base? Do you compete? All those sorts of things. Like, do you play bigger than your size? And I think Clay had some of those tools, and and we didn't really evaluate at the time because he never really showed the capacity to use them. Yeah, great point. That 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 functional strength, that sort of base core strength that you can have, uh, and it and it ties into the whole conversation. I think really nicely in the sense of we don't always know. Well, don't always. We rarely know what teams know. We rarely know what they can evaluate behind closed doors when we're talking about player development, when they have a prospect or a potential draft pick that they're evaluating or working out, or they already have guys on the team who are young and they're on that first contract. And, you know, a couple years later, they're either going to be let go or they're going to get a max extension or whatever it may be. These are the kinds of things that I always wonder, you know, are you looking, are you putting your sort of magnifying glass and looking under that perspective, are you shining a light on those areas? Or is it something uh, more maybe superficial? Maybe that's not the best word, but is it like, okay, uh, we got your shot from 33% to 36%, so we're good here? Yeah. God, it, feel, it feels like we could go on for another hour and a half talking about all this stuff, but we can save that for another time. Maybe a different place. We'll see. We'll see where that can, we'll see yeah, that can happen. Yeah. But unless is, is there anything else that you feel like we definitely should have in this conversation before before we let go? Oh, I don't know. This this is uh, I hope. Well, it here, been... here, here's, 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 here's where I'll leave it for right now. We're more than a month from the start of the season, but getting pretty close to a month before the start of the season. If you had to pick the team that you think is most likely to win the championship right now, who would you pick? Man, what a bombshell to drop. <laughs> I, I'm 
evil. Just, just sneak it right in. Uh, okay, I'll, hold I can on. answer first if you want to think about it. Yeah, you go ahead. I want to think about this. So I do. I absolutely do not think that they will have the best record in the regular season. I've I've been up front. I picked their under in the over under podcast I did with Arturo Galetti. But my instinct, just gaming it all out, both the strength of the conferences and the structure of the teams. I think right now the Clippers are the most likely champion because not only do I love the base that they have, but they're, they're, uh, the, we talked about scheme versatility. You know, you're going to have to face three different capable opponents. I think they can handle a lot of that stuff. But the other most important thing that the Clippers have, which some of their other competitors do not, is I think they have the highest capacity to improve in season. And they have a pretty clear-cut incentive to do so with Balmer and they're trying to get a new arena and everything else. So if I were to predict more on the side of which of these teams gets better in terms of personnel, not in terms of whose personnel improves the most. Because, like, who knows? Maybe Giannis just has another level. I'm not going to write off that. I mean, he, MVPs at his age often, from what I recall, get a lot better. But all of those things, if these teams are pretty close, you know, the Clippers, the Bucks, maybe the Sixers, maybe the Lakers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on the team that has guys that are proven playoff performers in the set, Kawhi, more than anybody else, and that can get better. So that's why for me right now, it's the Clippers. It's close. I don't feel super great about it. They could get knocked out in the second round, something else like that. But right now, they're my most likely favorite. Boy, that doesn't help me. Um, I, I, I think the safe answer is the Clippers. I think that's the safe answer for all the reasons that you just outlined. Oh, so you're calling me a coward. I get it. That's fine. No, 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 no. I, it's more, it's, it's less about that side of the coin and more about the other side of the coin which is that every single team so okay to me the clippers have uh health questions that's a that's a big one and i think even here's the thing even if they're healthy a i'm not entirely sure the roster construction is going to be the same that it is today i'm just i still can't figure out or i'm not convinced that you're going to have those same core pieces with lou and trez coming off the bench so that's one thing about the clippers for me uh but then the lakers have all kinds of question marks the the bucks i guess are still in play but i don't i don't love the bucks i i'm kind of higher on philadelphia and that experiment than most people i'm excited to to dig in later in the summer I'll, i'll get into some stuff on them but they have maybe the biggest injury question mark in the whole league with Embiid. So, and then Houston with the Westbrook and Harden experiment, I, I, I guess has some, some flutter of massive upside. I know there are certain models out there that absolutely love Houston, but that's an enormous wild card to me. Um, I'm not totally so I, I like what Utah did in the regular season. I don't know if they have quite enough unless someone like Mitchell takes a huge leap to get over the hump in the playoffs. And who's that? I guess the only team I haven't really mentioned is Golden State. And part of me kind of wants to say Golden State, but I also feel like their roster, the, the peripheral pieces in their roster are just not where they need to be at all to get them through those key playoff series. Not to mention that Curry's going to have to do a lot more and he could wear down and Clay's going to come back from injury. So that's why I say the Clippers are the safe answer. It's because I look at the field and I do not want to be forced to choose one of those teams, Danny. 
Here's something interesting. I, I was about to wax a little bit poetic about how excited I am about all of the Bucks Sixers games because I think that's another one of those styles makes fights things. And I think that while I don't love the Sixers necessarily in the abstract, I am very interested in how they match up against Milwaukee specifically. Here's the timing of their four regular season games this year. They don't play for the first time until Christmas. Then they play Christmas Day, February 6th, February 22nd, and April 7th. So depending on how this shakes out, it could be a really weird time in terms of evaluating how those two teams play each other. Because Christmas games, it's a Christmas morning game. They can be anomalous, like morning West Coast, early afternoon East Coast. But those games can be super weird just because the rest and everything else gets weird. And then that game at the end of the season, it's so late. It's in the last week, week plus. Maybe guys are resting or something like that. So we might not know, we might not have a clear sense other than these two little games in February, kind of a, each around the All-Star break, of, of how those two teams square off. Yeah, and I think to that point, I think one of the reasons why I'm a little higher on Philly is if the experiment, like the defensive ceiling is so high that you really only need to, in theory, like you get over the hump in the East by beating Milwaukee probably in the conference finals. We, there, there doesn't seem to me right now to be another really dangerous contender. And so I agree they match up well with Milwaukee. Then you're left with a single playoff series in the finals where they possibly have home court. Who knows what kind of bloodbath the West is going to end up in. Uh, by the way, the since the three-point shot came in in 1980, the fewest number of wins for a one seed is 58. It's the only time the top seed in both conferences, not a not a one seed in any conference, in the the one seed in the whole tournament in both conferences, 58. That was 2004. The Minnesota Timberwolves. Every other year, the best team in the league has had at least 60 wins. And I thought last year we had a we had a shot to challenge that and not have a 60 win team. We did have 60 win team in Milwaukee. This year it might get even crazier, where I think we could possibly challenge that. 58 win low mark and if that happens philadelphia wins like 56 games 57 games in the east and has home court advantage in the finals and they match up well with one of those western teams then all of a sudden it's like you can see how you can talk yourself into not loving the philly experiment but also giving them pretty good championship equity so i I don't i don't know what to do with this field and uh, i guess apologies to to denver for we talked about denver for like an hour today so yeah, we, we we talked we talked about them for a moment, and and I love a season like this where there's so much to figure out and so much to learn, and acknowledging as I think you and I both have, and I think a lot of people would be wise to do as well, that not only are things going to change, but we have a lot to learn. And so the lessons that come out of the first week, out of the first month of the season, they provide value, but they will not be definitive and determinative. And I like that sort of a season. And there's going to be so much to watch and so much to pay attention to. 100% agree. Look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ben Taylor for taking the time to come on. You can listen to him, read him, and watch his work all really under the Thinking Basketball header. That's the name of the YouTube channel. That's the name of his podcast. That's the name of his Patreon. And that's the name of his book. So you can check all those out. It is not the name of his Twitter, though. Ben's 
Twitter account is E-L-G-E-E, then the number three and the number five. He's great in all of those capacities, loved having him on, and as we kind of teased in it, it it sounds like I'm probably going to do his show at some point in the near future. We're working on timing. I will, of course, let you know that in various capacities if and when it happens. Still more content here, though, for Real Jam Radio for this week. Next up is my conversation with Dave Mason of BetOnline.ag about a fascinating week three in lines for the NFL. Hope you enjoy that as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Danny. So uh, I was thinking about week two, and for me, I mean, my friends and I were watching football together on Sunday during week one, and one of the first things we talked about, like we were kind of piecing through it, was how in the world do you set the line for the Patriots-Dolphins game? So I knew that was something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it just... I mean, we set it too low. Um, I was surprised we opened it at 14 and a half. I mean, you know, traditional, I, I think that's traditional bookies just doing the thing they've done over the years, which would make sense about a 14 and a half point spread. But, you know, with this, these Dolphins and what the Patriots are do, doing the last few years, you just got to throw all that traditional kind of lines making theory out the window and tack points onto it. So, yeah, I was surprised. I talked to our head guy, and I talked about it, and we opened 14 and a half. I was like, holy cow. And, uh, yeah, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit there with him kind of busting his chops and because uh, it went up to, you know, immediately 15 and a half, 16 and a half, 17 and a half, 18 and a half. Then it went up to 19. Now it's back down a tad to 18 and a half minus 112. So, yeah, man. I mean, God, I mean, the Patriots at the Dolphins is just scary this weekend, man. But, uh, you know, we're looking at some stats earlier and, and uh, the, the, when the Patriots are that are, are uh, favored by that many points and into the 20s, you know, they've been over the years, especially back in 2007 or whatever. It's hard to cover those big numbers. So the house, so we're, we're going to be hoping that the uh, the Dolphins somehow cover that large number because like 73% of the early betters are on New England. Yeah, and I mean, that gets into one of the, the real challenges is you're trying to set a number where you get action on both sides. And it's like, how can you make people confident in the Dolphins? I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of it on the, pro, on the pro-Patriot side, people think about it that way. But really, that's a part of it too, is just like, how high does the number have to be to be comfortable that, that a team can, can basically, the underdog can handle the spread? No, absolutely. You're, you're right. And, um, you know, again, it's it, it's it, it's not always about getting even action on both sides. Very rarely, actually, we want the right number. Um, but, you know, you, you can't go to 20. I guess you can. But we'd rather not have 20 than the Sharps will just be pounding Dolphins. Not that the Sharps have been right about the Patriots over the last few years because every, every dang week I – uh, the sharps bet the other side. They're always wrong about the whenever the Patriots play. So, uh, you know, it, but uh, you know that twenty, that key number twenty, then twenty one. It on the road. It, it just, it, I cannot see it happening. But who knows? Come Sunday, if, if the action just keeps pouring in on the Patriots, and we need a little buyback, then it, then it could hit twenty. Then the other thing this this came out we're recording on on Thursday was Sam Darnold getting mono and mono. I, I mean it's amazing how things like that I mean it, it's true in NBA it's true in the NFL how something can come absolutely out of nowhere and throw things into chaos yeah absolutely uh, mono huh <laughs> that's a new one I guess um, yeah I mean it, it was I think two and a half they're favored by two and a half before the news of his mono broke and then. Uh, Went all the way up to six and a half, and that's where we sit right now. Uh, no, we're at six. Yeah, six and a half, six and a half. Sorry, Browns are favored by six and a half over the uh, Jets. 
who will be at the Simeon under center. So good luck to them. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. And I mean, also seeing some of these backup quarterbacks who you have to dig through. I mean, that happened when uh, when Foles got hurt and Gardner Minshew comes in. And what else interests you for going into week two? I mean, certainly there's a lot to take in from week one, but it's also the, you know, the signal and the noise, making sure that nobody's overreacting to one week or I mean, just, and just making sure that it's that the line is set correctly. Yeah, um, well, things things we're looking at week two are a lot of what lopsided decisions coming up. I mean, there's a ton of um, road favorites. What there, I think there's eight on the board now, or one or nine. I mean, anytime you have road favorites, look out. Uh, the the action is is people love betting those road favorites. So we have some huge exposures going into this weekend. Um, plus the fact that. The, the betters won NFL, NFL week one. They beat us up a little bit. So there's a lot of people, a lot of money in their account. But, I mean, you got Dallas is going to be huge. 90, 92% of the betters so far are on Dallas. Um, they, they already mentioned that uh, that New England bet, bet count. Chicago, 82% on Chicago, minus two and a half. Philadelphia, minus one on Philadelphia. 81% is on Cleveland. So, yeah, it, there's going to be big sweats this weekend. We're looking at those uh, those those road favorites. We're going to be sweet, sweating them. Wow, yeah, that that's that's a pretty heavy amount of the action on on one side. But and with the NFL, when you when each team only plays one time a week, that's a lot of of weight going in that direction. You know, you hope that it works out eventually. That's part of the concept here. But yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what makes the NFL so much fun, and <laughs> that's why I love it. You know, that one game a week where it just means so dang much, whether whether you're betting on it, whether you're just a fan, or you got fantasy football riding on it, and that one game a week, it all comes down to that and make, makes it a lot of fun Sunday. But when you get beat up, man, if those if those road favorites are covering this weekend, I'll be whining and crying. Don't call me on next Monday. I'll be, I'll be blubbering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else you think listeners would enjoy heading into week two? Uh, well, all sorts of good stuff going on at BetOnline.ag. We have a $100,000 perfect parlay contest. Go sign up for that every week. Uh, we got $100,000 in cash on the line. Um, go sign up for that. It's free to enter. You just got to give us 50 bucks in action during the week to qualify. Check it out. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to Dave for taking time to come on and you can check out betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code. Also, of course, thanks again to Ben Taylor, Thinking Basketball Everywhere, and then ELGEE35. If you want to support the show, so many ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that's great for a show like this that comes out every week, but at different times during the week. You can spread the word however you see fit for a single episode or the whole series. And you can leave a rating or review and podcast player if you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If you want to be super awesome and you use something else like I do, you can leave a review there as well. And the most important thing is to check out our sponsors, the aforementioned betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. I said that I wanted to talk about Sean Livingston, and yeah, this morning was, I mean, I, I knew this was coming, or had a pretty good idea, because uh, the conversation that he had with Anthony Slater, which I linked to on my Twitter account this morning, made it pretty clear that that's where Livingston's mind was going if the Warriors decided to not fully guarantee his contract for the 1920 season, which they did not if, uh, in July. And 
Why it's been challenging for me, I've been piecing it together over the course of the day, and I think it's because he is, for me, the crystallization of the idea that almost everybody who's in the line of work that I am, and that Ben is, and that Nate is, and so many of the the rest of us, is that we start as fans first, and you can't really go as deep as we do without that passion. And as many of you know, I got into basketball really late. I didn't really get into it until college. And so even though we are the same age, I'm actually six months older than Sean, he was one of my first favorite like players to watch. And his Peoria games, um, when I was a freshman in college, they were on ESPN, so it was a network that I had in my dorm. I would watch those when I could. And then he got drafted by the Clippers. And the Clippers were the team I could afford to attend. Lakers games were way too expensive then. And I was captivated by Sean Livingston. He was one of my favorite guys to watch. He was one of my favorite point guard prospects. And to be able to have those rare opportunities when I was able to take time off work and or take time off school and head over to Staples and see him. And then, of course, he tears up his knee, possibility of amputation, and then works his way back. And I mean, that story in and of itself is an amazing one. And the the idea that you could be so great at something at such a young age and have it taken away from you, likely permanently, and then make your way back and have the path that he did and fighting through and earning the opportunities that he got was, was really incredible. And then to go on top of that and then with all of that, not prologue, that's that's a whole damn story in and of itself. And then he ends up five years ago on the Warriors just as they end up being on the cusp of a dynasty. And his perspective on basketball, on life, and his candor with all of that was really, I think it was it was amazing to me as a media member, but I'm sure it was really affecting for the players. And the Warriors were lucky enough during that run to have a lot of guys that could give them perspective, whether that was Andre Guadala or David West or any number of other other players. And of course, all the, all the stars had their own perspective too. A lot of them had been in tough situations early in their career. Basically, everybody but Draymond had been on a really bad team at some point during their professional run. And being able to cover that Livingston was truly fascinating. And he talked a lot about his path to that point. I was trying to find this morning, I was trying to find the transcript for after the uh, 2015 championship, the first one the Warriors won. Almost every player made it through the interview room at some point. I didn't get to go in the locker room that year. There's a whole story with that that I've never told. And so I was I was in the me- I was in the interview room and talking with the players when they came through. And he was able to and Andre did this as well. Really put it in perspective. They they were able to get that immediate kind of sense of where this fit into their lives. And it was always so interesting to me that he was able to do that because it, it was impressive. And I mean, he'd been through so much, and to to really get that that kind of a culmination, which then became his huge role on this on this team for the the subsequent four years, and being a huge part of it, one of the few reliable bench players that they had at moments, a member of their closing five, but not usually. And it was, I mean, it was special. I mean, to to be able to. Have somebody that that I you know to an extent as you can with a peer that I idolized as as a player as somebody who could do something I could never ever do. Then years later, after they've been through just the ringer in terms of their professional career, the physical, the the toll that, that took on him to come through it and not only be the player that he became, but also to be the just the human being that I've interacted with a little bit. I don't spend a lot of time with players. That a lot of that is deliberate and. I just enjoyed all of our interactions. I've talked, you know, we did a little bit of one-on-one stuff, but also all the stuff, I mean, you've heard a lot of the local and national people because of all the journeyman time you spent talking about that. And there aren't many stories like his. And I hope that, 
people can appreciate it. There's some great work out there. Slater's done some. Jonathan Abrams wrote a definitive Livingston piece years ago that not every great story is a Hall of Fame player and not every great story is an NBA player, much less. And and I consider myself lucky, honestly, to have been uh, a part of that, to have experienced elements of it firsthand. And I know a lot of other writers are, are sharing those thoughts today because they were at different phases in this process. And it's not a big world. And Livingston was, was somebody special. So consume that content if you're interested. Um, I'm probably not going to produce any of it myself. There's so many so much excellent work out there from people who are better at the narrative stuff than I am. So take a look at that. Some of it's at The Athletic. As I said, Abrams, I, I, I will retweet it once I reread it because um, I remember it was great. I want to I reread it before I do that. And yeah, I mean, this is a uh, this is a lull, but there's still lots of good stuff out there. I mean, Ben's work, I was re-watching some of his videos today. You can definitely take a look at that. Nate, Dan Feldman, and I did the mock rookie scale extensions, and we threw in some other extensions as well. That was on Dunked On this week. A lot of fun there going through it, and... I've been saying this for a few weeks now, but I do have writing that's coming out soon. That's it's really in process now. I have I have a few drafts that are that are pretty close to submission. It's just going to be about when they get published, and I have probably about fifteen ideas that I really want to hammer out and get done before the season starts. So it'll be coming soon. And then of course, Real Jam Radio going strong every single week. Still have three division podcasts to do. Uh, those are probably going to be the next three weeks, just depending on guest availability. And then still have a couple other things to discuss. And I've already been talking with some guests about how that's going to work too so then we get into the season and the, and the real fun starts that's where where ben and i ended and it's just so much fun so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7, with supplies and solutions for every industry, and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.